Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we're talking about convertible debt. It's a complex area, and because it's recently been heating up the markets, we thought it would be a good time to talk about the key concepts behind the accounting. Joining me remotely from his home is PwC National Office Partner, John Bishop. John has an amazing ability to simplify complicated accounting issues, so I'm happy to have him back on the show to help us understand how it all works. So don't go away. So John, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've been hearing a lot about the fact that the market for convertible debt has really heated over the past few months. So before we get into the accounting, could you just give us some color of what we see going on in the markets? Yeah, you, you are correct. Uh, the market has been amazingly active, particularly in the second quarter of this year. You know, we're feeling it here in the national office with uh, consultation volume. But um, in addition to that, I, I've read some articles that in the uh, in the second quarter of this year alone, we've had more issues of convertible debt than we've had since 2007, and we've already exceeded last year's total of volume just in the second quarter. So, you know, the market has really, really been active. It surprised me actually when you referenced 2007. So what about the current environment makes convertible debt so attractive right now? You know, I think there are two things that are going on. One is the issuer community um, has a high demand for liquidity given the economic shutdown, uh, decline in demand, uh, consumer demand. So issuers are looking to um, strengthen their balance sheet and increase liquidity. In addition, the investor community has expanded since uh, over time. I mean, historically, most of the investors have been hedge funds, but now we're seeing insurance companies and others get into the marketplace. So there's a broader base of investors available uh, for issuers. But why is this particular instrument so attractive? Well, uh, for an investor, what they do is um, it's a hybrid instrument. So they get the benefit of a debt instrument, which gives them uh, debtor rights, principal protection. And if the equity markets don't perform, they'll get their principal back at maturity. But it also gives them the opportunity to participate in the upside of the company if the company does turn around and, and perform well and the share price increases, they will be able to take advantage of that stock price appreciation through their conversion options. So it gives them the, somewhat the best of both worlds. Yeah, definitely win-win, especially given what's going on in the current economic environment. So then, John, from that perspective, are there any other macro reasons that the market is so active right now? Well, of course, issuers you know, generally, like I said, have a need for increased liquidity. But these instruments are very attractive to them because it allows them to use the conversion option to buy down the, the cash coupon rate. And given the utility that we've experiencing in the stock market, the options are more valuable, which gives them a little bit more juice, if you will, in reducing the cash coupon uh, in these instruments. So, these, so they can issue these at a very, very low cash cost and raise the necessary funding that they need. So all of those things are, I think, converging to create a lot of activity in that marketplace. 
Yeah, sounds win-win. But John, let me go back to what you said about 2007. So you said this the most activity since 2007. And that was right before I'll use the word, quote, bust. And now we're sort of in that phase. So mm-hmm. why do we see it before in the boom? And now we're yeah. seeing it in this current environment? That's a good question. Um, in you know the financial crisis of 2008, that was a crisis originating in the financial markets. So a lot of the financial markets, um, the activity slowed down or even stopped. This is different. This is being driven by a demand shock, a consumer demand shock. Uh, The markets are still open. So the market participants are still able to access the markets. And now that we, you know, like we, we just discussed, we have increased demand from issuers, a broadening investor base, you know, it's just a fundamentally different type of recession that we're experiencing uh, today. You touch briefly on how this instrument works. And I think superficially, a lot of people understand, oh, convertible debt, what that must mean. But before we get into the counting, can you give a little more perhaps scientific explanation uh, of what we mean when we say convertible debt? Yes. A convertible debt is a hybrid instrument. It, it essentially is similar to a combination of a debt instrument and a warrant on the company's uh, stock. Um, so what that means, like I mentioned before, it gives the investors the benefits of being a debt holder with the credit protection that comes along that. It also gives the investors the opportunity to participate in um the upside in, in, in the share price of the company if the stock appreciates. The difference between a separate debt instrument and a separate warrant and a traditional convertible debt instrument is that the investor has to make a choice. They can't get both the principal back and the equity upside. They they either have to accept the principal back or turn the bonds in for the shares that underlie the conversion option. Uh, so there's a little bit of a binary choice for, with a traditional convertible instrument that differs from your standard debt with separate warrants. John, you used the term traditional convertible debt a couple of times. What do we mean by that? Uh, well, like other areas of the financial instrument marketplace, you know, converts have undergone some evolution and financial engineering over time. So in addition to the, you know, the traditional type of convert where you only have a choice to return the bonds and get the full notional number of shares underlying the conversion option. Uh, certain instruments have been developed that give issuers a little bit more flexibility in how uh, the instruments can be settled. Uh, so, you know, there are two primary types of instruments that have evolved in the market. Uh, one is one in which the issuer is required to settle the principal amount in cash and so basically pay back the principal. And the conversion option, if there's value in it, the issuer has the choice to settle that in either you know, the cash value or in net shares. In the, mar- in the accounting vernacular, we call instrument C. Another instrument that goes even further to give the issuer more flexibility is an instrument that we call instrument X, which basically just gives the issuer full flexibility on how to settle the full value. They can settle it in cash, in shares, in any combination they choose at the maturity date or at the date the investors convert. 
Well, that's probably a good introduction to our discussion of the counting, because I know the county model is very complex. So so good to start on this note. So John, what are the main things that an issuer should worry about from an accounting perspective when dealing with these types of instruments? The primary concern that an issuer will need to focus on from an accounting perspective is ensuring that the the terms and conditions of the the convert contract are such that the conversion option does not have to be bifurcated and separately accounted for as a derivative. Because if it has to be accounted for as a derivative, then the way that accounting works is you essentially treat it as a separate debt instrument and a separate warrant that is uh, treated as a liability. And the accounting for that would be mark-to-market through income. I've never really met a CFO or CAO that enjoys that kind of accounting result. So there, there really is a high level of sensitivity uh, around structuring the terms of these instruments to avoid that result. How can that volatility be avoided? You know, the terms of these converts, you have a traditional convert that's issued by a public company. Um, those converts will meet the definition of a derivative because they'll have the primary characteristics of a derivative, a notional number of shares, an underlying, which is the price of the shares. And because it's a public company, uh, the shares that will be delivered often will be readily convertible to cash. The instrument X and C varieties doesn't matter if it's a public company because they have contractual net settlement provisions in the option. So the conversion options meet the definition of a derivative. And one of the requirements that need to be met or you know, that you can trip over that would result in bifurcation is that the embedded derivative, in this case, the option, meets the definition of a derivative. And because it's equity-based, which has nothing to do with an underlying debt instrument, it also meets the other requirement for bifurcation. So the conversion option, it would likely meet the requirements for bifurcation without some kind of relief provided in the derivative standard. Companies focus on trying to meet one of the scope exceptions that are provided for in the in the derivative standard. And that is what we refer to as the own stock scope exception. So there's an exception in the derivative accounting rules that says that if uh, derivatives that are indexed to your own stock that meet a whole host of requirements uh, would not have to be accounted for as a derivative. And in this case, with a convert, if it meets those requirements, bifurcation would not be necessary. So qualifying for this scope exception is a, a very complex analysis and, and requires a uh, thorough knowledge of some, uh, some very challenging areas of gap. The first thing you need to evaluate is the settlement provisions in the contract. The basic rule for qualification is that the conversion option requires the investor to pay a fixed price, which is the bond principle, and get a fixed number of shares. Any variations to that basic framework require analysis. Because oftentimes, the number of shares or the strike conversion rate may be designed to change to insulate the investors for certain things that that may happen. Um, dilutive events of the company, market disruptions, and the like. And so an analysis is required to ensure that whatever adjustments are, are provided for in the conversion in the bond contract are consistent with the 
exceptions that are allowed for in the in the literature. And that's a very complicated exercise. The second requirement is to evaluate the settlement alternatives in the contract. So the basic rule there is that if the investor could under any circumstances be required to settle the conversion option in cash, that would prevent them from qualifying for the scope exception. So they have the choice to settle in cash, but there, if there are any circumstances in which that, that would be the only alternative for them to uh, settle the instrument, that would, like I said, uh, cause them not to qualify. The problem with that rule is that it's a it's a possibilities-based model. We're not allowed to consider probabilities. So even uh, events that you know any reasonable person would say is, is unlikely to occur because it's possible it could occur would cause us to not be able to comply with those rules. So that area creates a lot of stress sometimes with our clients because you know CFO or CAO may see a provision that they view as somewhat trivial because it's so unlikely to occur uh, and we'd have to um, educate them that nevertheless that would be a um, create some concerns for the scope exception so john going back to what you said about instrument c and instrument x i thought you those non-traditional in those examples i think you said that you would have that not that you would have to but that you would have the option in settling in cash so then with that um Foil the scope exception? No, because as long as the issuer gets to choose and is not in a circumstance where they are forced to pay cash, they could qualify for the scope exception. Okay. So then let's now assume we've qualified for the scope exception. What is the accounting? So we talked about what is a, a bifurcation model. So that's a circumstance if you if you, if you don't qualify for the scope exception. You have to separate the conversion option and treat it as a derivative, which means you treat it as a, a liability and you market to market through income. If you don't uh, have to bifurcate and you qualify for the scope exception, if you have an instrument C or an instrument X, um, GAAP requires a different kind of separation model. The separation model that's required for those instruments is that the conversion option component is actually recognized as a component of equity. And the debt component is initially measured with a corresponding discount, which is created when you allocate a portion of the bond proceeds to equity. Um, that discount, of course, increases the interest expense uh, attributable to the, to the debt. The rules were issued to try to adjust the interest cost of these instruments to their true interest cost and not reflect interest at the cash coupon rate. Because as, as we discussed at the beginning, in circumstances where the conversion option is very valuable, you could have cash coupon rates that are approaching zero. So this model tries to reset the interest cost to a more market rate. So then you have the higher interest cost in your coupon, but you avoid the volatility that you would have if you did have to bifurcate and account for it as a bit of. Absolutely. So then, John, that's definitely complicated. And I know you've simplified it significantly for the purposes of this podcast. 
in that context, then, I also know that the FASB has taken this up as an area of gap that they are looking to simplify in the future. And in fact, that we should be expecting a new standard sometime this month. So once that's out, I definitely will on another podcast to talk about the new standard. But in the meantime, are there any highlights that you would just share in terms of what we are expecting to change? Within the context of what we've been talking about, Heather, I would note two, maybe three points. Uh, The first is that the bifurcation rules are not really going to change. So we're still going to have to evaluate convertible instruments to ensure that the conversion option and the terms around it satisfy the scope exception. Because if it doesn't, we're still going to have the issue with bifurcation and treating as a derivative. What is going to go away are these other separation models. So the requirement to record an instrument C or an instrument X conversion option in equity and increase the uh, interest cost is going to be removed. And it's going to revert back to the way the rules worked 25 years ago, that if you don't have to bifurcate the option as a derivative, then you treat the instrument as one unit of account and record it as debt. And if it's got a very low coupon interest rate, that's the interest that's recognized going forward. Wow. So all the more reason people are going to want to really understand those rules to get through and not have to bifurcate and to qualify for that scope exception. Right. All right. So then, John, any other highlights of areas that will be impacted? Yeah. The other area that I alluded to was some slight changes to earnings per share. Today, when an instrument X is issued, remember now that instrument X is the one where the issuer has the choice to do whatever it wants in terms of settlement. It can all cash, all stock, any combination of the two. The way the EPS rules work today with respect to that is you start with a presumption that it'll be all stock. That means that for purposes of measuring um, diluted earnings per share, you have to use what we call the if, what the standard calls the if converted method. That's not a popular method. Um, reason it's not popular is that it tends to reflect dilution even in circumstances when the option's not in the money. Right. So you could have a conversion option that's not yet even in the money. But if you have to assume the full issuance of the shares underlying the conversion and add back the interest element, that often produces dilution vis a vis basic earnings per share. So that's not a popular method. Today, though, there are circumstances where an issuer can overcome that presumption. And therefore, if, if they can overcome that presumption through an ability and an intent to avoid um, share issuances, um, then they could revert to what market participants think is a more economic model, like a treasury stock uh, type of model. The way the new rules are going to work is you don't get that option to avoid share issuance. So instrument X's will be uh, have to be accounted for under the converted method for purposes of earnings per share. So some benefit on the accounting side but then when we get to EPS, this is the, the new model may not be as beneficial for uh, companies when they adopt it. Yeah, that's probably maybe the give back. Yeah, a little bit <laughs> of uh, reduced interest expense, but you're stuck with the if converted method. 
And since you mentioned EPS, I have to mention that if listeners want to hear more about that, they definitely should go listen to our podcast from last summer on EPS, where John was my guest. So then before I let you leave today, any other areas on convertible debt that we should mention to our audience? Yeah, one uh, one common transaction that we see that often accompanies convertible debt so are um, what we call bond hedges. So those are are you know we issue a conversion, we issue a convertible debt that let's say has you know a convert price at a hundred. Make it simple. What companies can do is they issue two options: these call spreads as separate instruments that has the effect of adjusting the convert price to an amount higher than 100. So the way that's done is they issue a combination of call options, first a a long call at 100 to offset the conversion option in the bond, and then um, simultaneously they write another call option, let's say with a strike price of 115. The economic effect of that is to adjust the convert price in the bond from 100 to 115. These instruments come in two varieties. You can have one single contract uh, designed as a call spread, or you can uh, have uh, what they call that a cap call, or you can, they structure it as two separate instruments, one a purchased option and one a written option. They attract the same issues that we discussed. You know, the key there is to ensure that these options will be considered equity because of the company's own stock scope exception, you know, the focus is structuring them so they don't qualify as derivatives and therefore it would have to be marked to market. And of course, they bring with them some earnings per share implications. And the call spread is treated a little differently than the cap call for purposes of earnings per share. All right. I think there's many areas of gap. They're very complicated and helpful to know the rules and that you want to think about the accounting before you get into the transaction. And I think that applies in spades to convertible debt that you want to understand before you sign the instruments and potentially get help from someone who really knows these rules. I think that's good advice, Heather. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Well, John, as always, it was a pleasure to have you on. Before I let you leave today, I do have to ask you our positivity question. And what I've been asking my guests recently is about what they like about summer. But specifically for you, I was thinking about the fact of how big an Islanders fan you are and how unusual it must be to be watching hockey in the middle of August. But just wanted to see what you were thinking about that and if you were enjoying having the end of your hockey season. Well, um, at first, I thought it was going to be uh, a little bit of an adjustment to uh, get my head around uh, playoff hockey in the middle of the summer. But they just started up this weekend. And it's it's fabulous. And uh, the Islanders won game one, so we're all good here. And the Rangers just lost game two today, so that just makes it even better. Yes, all the sweeter. Well, I like I said, I figured you were happy, and I can see by your big smile that's definitely good news. So yes. glad that they were able to figure that out and that they're able to try to finish the season. Hopefully they do. All right. Yes, there you go. All right. Well, on that note, John, thank you again for joining and look forward to having you back in the future. All right. My pleasure. Join me back here this Thursday for the next episode in our What's Next summer podcast series. 
We'll be talking about company culture and how to maintain team morale and connectedness during times of remote work. And for all your other accounting needs, join me every Tuesday when we cover the fundamentals of accounting. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.